if you would turn in your Bibles to the book of James, chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 13 through 18. Before we begin, let's pray. Our gracious Lord, we thank you um, for the opportunity to gather under the preaching of your word. We pray, Lord, that um, that you would speak loud and clear. We pray, Father, that uh, your word would go forth. We pray that we would hear and think upon your blessed son, the object of our faith. Lord, we ask that his name would be glorified in our midst and that, Lord, we would be strengthened and encouraged where we need to be strengthened and encouraged, that we would be convicted and rebuked where we need to be convicted and rebuked, Lord, and that your presence would be with us in the midst of this. I pray that you give me strength and give me words to say. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. James was a pastor in the early church. He ministered in Jerusalem to a predominantly Jewish Christian group. This epistle that we're going to be looking at today was one of the first letters written in the New Testament. Now, James, as a pastor, has a deep concern that his congregation evidence a genuine faith. James has affirmed the importance of faith. He has affirmed the necessity of the new birth for true spirituality. But the equally important evidence that James also affirms is the necessity of good works to accompany this faith. Only faith, only faith, Having only faith is enough to make one a devil. The difference between the faith of a devil and the faith of a Christian is that the faith of the Christian is a living faith, a faith that produces fruit. So truth over against falsehood is a central issue throughout the book of James. True religion and true faith over against self-deception. Thus, James has a serious problem with hypocrisy, with double-mindedness, with duplicity. In James chapter 1, James tells people to ask the Lord for wisdom. In verse 6, he offers this qualification. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. If we ask from God, we must ask in faith. If we ask from God without faith in God, it is duplicity. Christians ought to never be described as hypocrites or duplicitous. And James returns to this theme over and over and over. Do not be hearers of the Word only, but be doers of the Word. Sitting under sound instruction and saying, Amen, Amen, Amen all the while disregarding these commands with your lifestyle is not characteristic of a true Christian. Christians are those who hear and do. The same sentiment is articulated by James when he says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart. This person's religious is wor- religion is worthless. If someone goes to church and says, I am a man or I am a woman of God, I have come to know Christ, but they do not bridle their tongue, their life is stained by the world, their profession is to be questioned. Another issue that James heavily emphasizes is the idea of partiality. Um, it, what, it leads, what leads to partiality 
in the book of James is the issue of the rich and the poor within the congregation. The church largely was comprised of poor individuals, but at this, in this church in particular, when a wealthy individual would walk in the door, that wealthy individual would be given a position and a place higher than the poor individuals in the congregation. And James says this sort of partiality ought not to be. You see, the Gospel of Jesus Christ is the great equalizer. Both rich and poor, when standing before the throne of God on Judgment Day, will be stripped of absolutely everything that they have. Stripped of everything, what will any of us be able to offer to our Creator? The simple answer is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, and His Gospel offer goes forth to both rich and poor to both brilliant and dumb. It's the same offer of this Gospel. In the Gospel, all humanity is brought before God with nothing. But also in this Gospel, all humanity is offered the same glorious truth. The truth of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We in ourselves have nothing, but come to Christ and He will give you everything. And so James, throughout his epistle, is laboring to expose these areas of hypocrisy, these areas of truth and falsehood that exist in the midst of his congregation, but also that exist in our own lives. And so it's with these themes, front and center, that I want to approach our text this morning. James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. There James writes, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice." But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I'm going to be looking at this passage in three different sections. Point one, heavenly wisdom is the revelation of God and produces holiness. Focus on is the revelation of God. Point two, earthly wisdom exalts in self and produces discord and destruction. Point three, heavenly wisdom is the revelation of God and it produces wisdom or produces holiness. Focus on holiness. First point, heavenly wisdom is the revelation of God. Chapter three, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. James begins with a question to sort of put his audience on the spot. Namely, he's, he's highlighting those who think that they are wise and understanding. This mirrors James's statement to those who think that they are religious earlier in chapter 1. Simply put, this is another way for James to try and hit on someone's self-conception to reveal any sort of of hypocrisy or, or, or to reveal any sort of truth versus falsehood in our own lives. So the question, do you think you have understanding? Do you consider yourself to be a wise person? Then listen up. 
This might be particularly connected to the to the, the leaders of the church, as we see in chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. It might It is connected. For sure, as the the leaders, the ones who are in front of you speaking, are the ones who would consider themselves to be wise and understanding, or why would you stand in front of anyone and say anything? But what if you don't consider yourself to be wise and understanding? And what if you are not a leader of the church? Does this have anything to say for you? And James would say yes. Already in chapter 1, James has said, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him pray to God for wisdom. But even as we look at the content of wisdom, what is being spoken of here is not intelligence. It's not how to operate well in the world. What we are, are hearing about wisdom here is the revelation of God Himself that all Christians possess. This wisdom is not attached to your IQ. It is attached to meekness and humility, to the reception of the Word. This wisdom is something that every Christian has or that every Christian should have. Biblically speaking, the fool is one who denies even that God exists. The fool is one who mocks God. The fool is one who does not believe in Him. And the fool is one who is rejected by and rejects Jesus Christ. The fool is not sensitive to the Word and to the rebuke and correction of God. So you should see at this point that the fool cannot be a Christian and that the true Christian cannot be a fool. And the Bible sort of paints this in two categories. You're either foolish or you are wise. The fool is, again, hardened to God, but the wise are those who are sensitive to God, who sit under the authority of God and submit to God through the Bible. If you consider yourself wise, or if you are praying for this wisdom, if you consider yourself to be a Christian, the way that you will know that you have the sort of wisdom that's being spoken of here, James says, is by good conduct. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. We're going to speak more about this in point number three at the end of our passage, but I just wanted to highlight that here. In verse 13, however, I want to focus more on what is the nature of this wisdom that James is talking about. James characterizes this wisdom as meek, in the meekness of wisdom. James also characterizes this wisdom in verses 15 and in verse 17 as that wisdom that comes from above. True wisdom in this passage is meek, and true wisdom in this passage is from above. So let's press into this a little bit. The word meek here, or meekness, is used one other time in the book of James, in chapter 1, verse 21. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Meekness carries the connotation of a sort of humble gentleness. That is, humble gentleness under the authority of God. Simply, humility would be a fitting translation. 1 Peter chapter 5 helps us in this understanding. He writes there, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. 
Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Humility is a sort of deference or a sort of submissiveness to the proper authority. And it is counting the significance of others over and above the significance of yourself. This is primarily demonstrated in how you interact with others. How you interact with both God and other Christians around you. So the question is, is how do you comport yourselves with those who are over you? How do you interact with those who are your boss or your superior at work? Secondly, how do you interact with those who are under you? Those over whom you have charge and authority. How do you treat subordinates? How do you treat people at work? How do you interact with a spouse or with children? And at the fundamental issue here is the idea of meekness. Are you one who would be described as humble in your dealing with others? And the way that James connects this is that through meekness, one receives the Word. It's a, a, a spirit of reception from God. Thus, wisdom here, being characterized as meekness, is demonstrating further reception from God, particularly the Word of God. When you see God in Scripture... You can either humble yourself before Him and submit to His commands, or you can reject Him and refashion Him in a different image. There is no true humility apart from humbling yourself before your Creator. That is submitting to His plan, submitting to His will, submitting to what He has said is right and good versus what He has said is wrong. For James... This is submitting to the Gospel message that the apostles proclaimed. We receive the implanted Word in meekness. This implanted Word changes us. It reshapes us as the Spirit works through this Word on our hearts. James further characterizes this wisdom as wisdom from above, picking up on his language from chapter 1, verse 17. He says there, Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. This wisdom is a gift from God. It is not something we come to naturally. It is the reception of God's Word received in meekness that is able to save our souls. It is through this Word of truth that we are born again, that we are made new creations. And this Word of truth is the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. Therefore, the foundation of all wisdom for James and throughout the whole Bible is faith-filled reception of the revelation of God in the Word of God. It is hearing of God's holiness through Isaiah. It is hearing of man's sinfulness through the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3. It is hearing of the separation that has been torn between man and God in Genesis chapter 3. And it is hearing that only through the righteousness of Christ that we can have a right standing before God. It is that Gospel truth preached through the whole canon of Scripture and preached from this pulpit that through those words, God through the Spirit works a new change in our hearts. And it is that change in our hearts making us a new creation that we are brought unto a state of wisdom. That's what James is talking about when he's talking about wisdom from above. This isn't technical skill. This isn't some sort of secret 
knowledge. It is the revelation of God in the person of Christ through the preaching of the Gospel. But when you hear the Gospel, those of us who have believed and been sa- have been saved, we have a very different response to that message than those who don't. So the question, do you hear with faith or do you hear and think, there's no way that can be true. There are other ways to forgiveness. The Apostle Paul says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For us who are being saved, the thought of rejecting the Gospel is the most foolish thing that anyone can say. But believing the Gospel is to embrace the very wisdom of God Himself who solved the great human conundrum. How can we come back to Eden? How can we be restored to paradise? Is utopia possible? The answer is yes, but only through and in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the ultimate object of that paradise. For James, receiving the Word of God is like a dying man choosing the elixir of life over a painful death. And when you hear and believe, it is the evidence that God has begun this work in you. James says in chapter 1, verse 18, "...of His own will He brought us forth by the Word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures." This Word comes to us through the Bible. It comes to us through the preaching of Christians. It falls upon our ears. It sinks from the ears and takes root in our heart because the Spirit of God is at work. That Word taking root then begins to create new life in us. It creates new dispositions. It creates new desires in our hearts. And from there, it extends itself into our actions, creating virtue, creating a change of habits. This is the foundation of true wisdom. And it is true, or it is clear that true wisdom is simply what it means to be a Christian. So who is wise and understanding among you? You don't hear that as who are the superior people in our congregation. Hear that as Have you heard the Gospel? Do you believe the Gospel? If you have professed to have Christ, you have the very wisdom of God. How do you know whether or not you have that wisdom? It's shown by your good works. It's shown by the meekness of the reception of that Word. But contrary to this true and heavenly wisdom, James articulates a very different kind of wisdom in verses 3 uh, in verses 14 through 16, and this is point number two. Earthly wisdom is self centered and produces discord and destruction. Look with me at verses 3, 14 through 16. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. James cuts right to the heart of the matter immediately in verse 14. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, you do not have wisdom. So what are bitter jealousy and selfish ambition? I think rather than looking at each of these particularly and trying to trace them through the Scriptures, I think rather what James has in mind is the picture of an individual whose life is wrapped up around themselves. 
someone who's caught up in self-promotion, someone whose course of life would be described as self-focused. This is not just, it is, but it is not only a power grab to gain control for a position of leadership in the church. James clearly has this kind of thing in mind, and there is nothing more wretched or more sinister than a professed minister of the Gospel trying to use their church or or his position in that church to gain authority, to gain power, to gain influence. The church is the bride of Christ. And the pastor cares for her. The pastor loves her with the affections placed there by Christ as Christ Himself cares for and loves her. Using the church for personal gain or for your own prestige is to turn the bride of Christ into a whore and subject her to slavery. That is demonic activity. And woe to anyone who would do so. James has that in mind. But does that mean that this verse has nothing to say for the rest of us? And I want to say no. James has more than just that in mind. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition are getting at this idea of of someone who's wrapped up in their own desires, their own concerns, their own wants, their own needs. Someone like this is the center of their own universe. Someone like this is their own highest priority and making sure that they have everything that they want or that they desire is the ultimate aim of their life. Their ultimate aims are focused on self-actualization. Their, their ultimate aims are focused on, on how they can best get what it is they want. If they love people, if they love things, it's only so that they can use them as an, as an object or as a tool to get what they truly want. This mindset is wretched in a church leader. This mindset is wretched in a human being. And that mindset is antithetical to gospel wisdom because in the gospel you come face to face with the glory of God. The revelation of God is that God is the center of the universe and we are right when He is the center of our universe as well. Earthly wisdom says that you are the center of your universe and that everything else is a tool for you to use to get what you want. That's what earthly wisdom says. When you come face to face with the glory of God in the Gospel, it cuts directly across your own self-glorification and your own self-image. The first thing that it tells you is that you are a sinner and that you cannot get back to God on your own. It immediately cuts against that. Earthly wisdom says whatever you want is within your grasp. Whatever you want is within your grasp. And the world thinks that God-entranced wisdom is folly. The world thinks that someone going off to seminary to spend their life on the missions field is a waste of a perfectly good life. The world exalts self-exaltation. It exalts self-promotion. It exalts self-reliance and self-aggrandizement as as the way to, to find true peace and true meaning. And humility and meekness, if they are spoken of, are usually seen as a good way to become someone else's doormat. They're not seen as good or virtuous. So this vision of earthly wisdom is set over and against this vision of heavenly wisdom. And so what are the characteristics then of this earthly wisdom as James sees it? In verse 15, James writes, This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, 
demonic. That this wisdom does not come down from above, I think, is the overarching theme of this verse. This wisdom is characterized by earthliness. It's, it's natural wisdom. It's natural to humans in our state. You see, God's wisdom sent His Son to die in the place of sinners so that they might be reconciled unto Him. Human wisdom, or the Pharisees, in an act of human wisdom, slaughtered the Son of God so that they wouldn't lose their jobs or so that they wouldn't lose their position within the kingdom. You see, in the Pharisees and in Christ, a picture of earthly wisdom versus heavenly wisdom. This wisdom below is naturally bent and set in opposition to God. Because the wisdom from below asserts human authority, human ingenuity, over against every other form of authority or ingenuity. So you have these two forms of wisdom as diametrically opposed. James goes further. These are defined as earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. And again, I don't think that the way forward here is to simply do word studies, but I think the the picture that James is trying to set is to step back and see earthly, unspiritual, and demonic as sort of picturing this whole system of power hell-bent against God's proper rule, God's proper reign, and God's proper authority. This sort of wisdom exists naturally on earth as humanity's in, as the consequence of humanity's enslavement to sin and to Satan. This world is under the tyrannous rule of Satan and of sin. People are lost in their sins. They are dead to God and they are aligned against the glory and authority of God in their natural state. Humanity is bent in on itself, and each individual pursues his or her own glory, his or her own pleasure, his or her own happiness at whatever cost. This is the wisdom into which we were born, and this is the wisdom in which the whole world exalts. The root of this thinking comes from our father, Adam. God gave Adam one simple command in the garden. Do not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what was Satan's temptation? God is withholding this from you because God knows that on the day that you eat of this fruit, you will become like Him. So Satan holds forth this sense of self-actualization. You are not going to be complete or you can be better than you are if you would simply disobey God. If you eat of this fruit, it will make you better. God is this sort of celestial ogre withholding that thing which you need the most. That's the lie. It's on you. You've got to figure this out. This lie that God is withholding something good from us. And then we hear the whisper in our ear. You can have that. You can have that. It's easy. Just go get it. And I think this is why James calls this sort of wisdom demonic. Because from the very beginning, this is even the sort of thing that tempted Satan himself. Satan, as one of the most glorious angels, fell from that state of grace because it was not enough. Satan wanted the throne of God himself. Satan wanted to be king and emperor over everything. Satan believed that God was withholding or that he could have better apart from God. That is earthly, demonic wisdom. 
Satan only wants to lie. He only wants to steal. He only wants to destroy. And he wants to destroy nothing more than that which is the most precious to God. And what is more precious to God than the church? Nothing. Of all of the governmental systems and all of the people who are far more important than we are in terms of worldly power and prestige, God, in some sense, could care less. His eye is on the congregation of His Son. His eye is on the local assembly. And as we embrace... As we embrace satanic, worldly, natural ways of thinking, as we wrap our lives around ourselves, we are embracing Satan's destructive agenda and we are saying we want no part of God. We want to destroy that work which God has given us. And where satanic patterns of thought rule, disorder, chaos, and vileness rule. Look with me at verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. This connection here should be self-evident. Satan has set himself against the goodness and the beauty of God. When people follow the lies that Satan propagates, their lives follow this same course that Satan has designed, which lead only to turmoil and to sin. This course is founded upon chaos, upon restlessness. Isaiah 57 says, But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet. Its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. That is the state in which these patterns of demonic thought will lead you. And this results in deeper and deeper and deeper patterns of sinfulness. Look at Romans 1 and you see the progression. Idolatry leads to sexual immorality. Sexual immorality leads to greater and greater and greater and greater perversity. As God gives humanity over to following these patterns and He allows them to to sink deeper into these courses and patterns of sin. This is worked out in both the lives of individuals and in the lives of institutions. Particularly here, the church. Personally, we've talked about how Adam and Eve followed Satan's advice and they were cast out of paradise. They had everything they needed provided for them by God with one simple stipulation. When they were cast out of paradise, they meant nothing but the cursing of the soil, the cursing of their relationship, the cursing of carrying on the human race through childbearing. Their gaze shifted from the goodness of God to self-importance and everything was turned upside down for them. But brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ has come to turn everything right side up. In Christ we see the full revelation of the glory of God and we are brought from the rule and reign and dominion of Satan. We are transferred into the kingdom of light under the gracious rule and reign and dominion of our Savior Jesus Christ. As we focus on His glory, as we focus on furthering His kingdom, we are brought in line with our true purpose, which is to know Him and to be known by Him. In that beautiful relationship, humanity reigns. Because if you think about who would have the most warrant to be self-centered, is God. And we affirm that God is jealous for His glory. But we affirm also that in Christ, God condescended to depths that we cannot fathom. He exemplified humility by taking to Himself the 
form of His very own creation. By becoming a man, He didn't even just come to earth to be a king, which would have been a condescension. He came to earth to be a servant. To be a humble servant. One who ministered to the poorest, most wretched sinners in the midst of Israel. He condescended on our behalf to take upon the most demeaning aspect of human life, which is death. There's nothing more demeaning to what is natural to us than the fact that we die. It's only a result of sin and rebellion that death even exists in this world, and yet Christ subjected Himself to it so that through Him we might have life. The first step has been taken. This relationship then is characterized by humility already from God, but must be characterized by humility from our end as well. But contrary to this, when we submit to satanic impulses, when we listen to that whispering in our ear, does God really have your best in mind? Are you sure you can't do better than what you've got right now? We are left with nothing but emptiness. We are left with nothing but turmoil. The lives of those who have submitted themselves to Satan's rule and reign against God's proper authority are only darkness, despair of a, the, the darkness and the despair of a storm-tossed sea. We are left with little to hope for in life or in death. James's point in this is that the hypocrite is not real. The hypocrite is one who postures themselves as someone who loves the Lord, as someone who wants to pursue Him, but has been listening to the whispering and has been following the advice of Satan the whole time. The, missions of, the mission of God's people is that His name would be spread and glorified throughout the earth. And it's in partaking in that mission that we will find true joy. It's in partaking in that mission that we will find peace and rest. And as the lives of individuals go, so go the corporate entities here, the local church. The church is to be that oasis where God is presently extending His rule and reign through redeemed humanity. That's what the church is. This congregation should be our garden sanctuary where the fruit of righteousness is seen and the oaks of righteousness are growing deeper and taller. But just like that original garden, Satan desires to overthrow. Satan desires to destroy. Satan desires to conquer. And he does so through conquering individuals in the midst of the congregation. As we hear and believe the lie of Satan, as we participate in the extending of Satan's rule and reign, we are actively inviting death and destruction to reign in our midst. Now, if James were to stop here, we would be left with a very hopeless, despairing picture, and it would be a good warning, but I don't think helpful. But James doesn't do that as he then returns again to heavenly wisdom. This is verses, uh, chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. We come back to our final point. Heavenly wisdom is the revelation of God and it produces holiness with the focus on it produces holiness. God is recreating humanity after His own image and likeness. Read with me there. But the wisdom from above is first pure. 
then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. God is recreating humanity after His own image, after His own likeness, restoring in us that original created mark, that original created joy, that original peace, that original righteousness through the work of Christ. That work is not contingent on us, but it is contingent on God working through the proclamation of His Word as that bears fruit from our heart into our lives. To come back to the Eden imagery, <clears throat> this little church is a type of Eden. The presence of God dwells in our midst, not tied to the location, but tied to the people who inhabit this place. We cultivate, we sow, as Adam and Eve were called to cultivate, to keep and to, to restore the garden. We sow not with shovels and tractors, but we sow through our obedience to the Word of our Lord Jesus Christ. Receive with meekness the implanted Word. That is, the work of the Spirit through the Word of God is the tool. Our hearts are the soil. As we labor by faith to cultivate and to plant through the ministry of the Word, the Spirit in our midst will give us growth. It will give us flourishing. This is the sort of picture that James is painting here by the embrace of heavenly wisdom. This wisdom is first pure, that is, holy Flowing from God Himself, this wisdom exhibits the characters of God Himself. We know from the Word of God that God is holy, holy, holy. That is unstained, totally pure, not touched by the taint of sin. But also, when you had a holy object in the Old Testament, it was an object that was devoted to a particular use. The altar was holy, meaning it was unstained. But the altar also was holy, meaning that it was devoted to the purpose that God had given it. So when we think of God's holiness, we think of God, yes, as unstained, but we must also consider God's holiness as God's devotion, God's, God's purpose, God's, God's set-apartness for a particular purpose, which is the exaltation and the glorification of Himself. So this wisdom is in conjunction with God's very purpose, God's very being. And so all of these attributes must be seen in light of the fact that they are the very attributes of God Himself. And so James moves in. The, the attributes, I believe, are separated really into three categories. First, we have the disposition of the individual. These are peaceable, or the, these attributes are that, they, that wisdom is peaceable, gentle, and open to reason. James is dealing in this congregation with significant issues. We've already talked about partiality, but if you have your Bibles open, just look at chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. James writes to this church, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You see in, in those two verses a picture of what I've been talking about with earthly wisdom. There, there's infighting so bad that I believe it's hyperbole. I don't believe they were actually murdering each other. But the infighting was so bad that the hyperbole of murder fits the situation. You're hating each other. You, you're fighting against each other. True wisdom, heavenly wisdom, is peaceable. It's gentle. It's open to reason. If you embrace heavenly wisdom, 
If you embrace, if you hear and believe the Word of God, it sits in your heart and it begins to change who you are as a person. It changes your nature. It changes your disposition. It changes your affections by the work of the Spirit. And that will be evidenced in your relationship to each other. And so the, the, the foundation of this oasis in which we live, the church, this, this beautiful garden of God, the foundation is that those who inhabit it are different. We're no longer pursuing our own ends. We're no longer pursuing our own selfish desires and drives, but we are looking first to see the glory of God magnified in our midst, and then secondly, to see that our brothers and sisters around us are, are having good be done to them. If you have come to know God, His countenance will reflect on your face as Moses' face shined like the sun before the Israelites. That is a supernatural work. One that we must receive from Him, but one that He is willing to give us if we would but ask. If you're finding yourself questioning what sort of wisdom you have embraced at this point, or you're questioning the sincerity of your profession, the first thing is to ask God for heavenly wisdom. The first thing is to fall before the Lord in prayer and to beg Him to to reveal further the depths of your sin, but also the greatness and the glory of this Savior. You see, we, we sometimes will cast aspersion on something like, well, the best solution is to read your Bible and pray. But that is the best solution. Read your Bible and pray. The Spirit works through the Word of God. And God works when you ask Him to work. So read your Bible and pray, but don't come to me and say, well, I read it for three days in a row and I don't, I don't get it. Faithfulness, consistency, be before the Word of God, be in the Word of God day after day after day, year after year after year. And the, the process that the Lord has set before us of this Word being born in our hearts and worked out in our lives There are 2,000 years of history to bear witness to the truthfulness of this. It's how God works. Read the Bible and pray. Growth in the Christian life begins immediately at conversion. Some of us more radically converted than others, but it begins immediately at conversion. But the growth of sanctification is a lifetime of submitting yourself to the Word of God through His Word and through prayer. The reception of heavenly wisdom transforms the dispositions of the individual. And it is this transformation that will result in the transformation of the individual's actions and the culture of the church. Secondly, the next two attributes of this wisdom are pointing to the actions of individuals. The wise person is full of mercy and full of good fruits. Now this isn't merely feeling compassion for those who have less than we do. The, the idea here of, of um, uh, full of mercy are full of merciful actions. That that compassion leads you to do something. That you don't close off your heart to your brothers and sisters around you. This care is a care that motivates you. True wisdom believes that it is better to give than to receive. True wisdom believes that our neighbor is defined by those individuals on who we come upon. True wisdom does not turn its face to the poor. It does not turn its face to the hurting, particularly in our congregational context. True wisdom embraces difficult situations and it embraces difficult people. 
The congregation that James is writing to has been demonstrating a lack of true wisdom by showing partiality to the rich and by fighting and division and divisiveness in their congregation. That is not true wisdom. True wisdom, the kind of living that will flourish, is, is wisdom that is founded on love of God and love of neighbor. And then finally... This individual's life in the congregation. So we have full of mercy, good fruits, impartial and sincere. Now, impartial here is not a great translation. I understand why they did it. But the word, it really has two kinds of meanings. It, it's, the word it literally means a sort of consideration, that you're weighing two options. This is used in chapter 1 to talk about the man who is doubting. It says that he's wavering sort of wavering between two positions. That, that's a sort of consideration, a consideration that leads to doubting. But it can also be applied to the weighing of individuals. So a rich man and a poor man walks in and you weigh in consideration who you're going to go talk to. So it, I think it's both. If we as individuals are showing partiality in the midst of a congregation, we are not evidencing wisdom from heaven, but if we also are demonstrating a lack of true faith by weighing two options and trying to hedge our bets, we are also, in in some ways, damaging the congregation in which we partake. I think congregationally, impartiality here is more at at focus. We must be of, of a firm mindset. We must be committed to the glory of God as we live out our lives. That commitment, that stability will work its way out in how we treat people. What leads, what leads to showing partiality? It's this belief that you might have something to gain from someone. Why would you go to a rich man rather than a poor man? Because you believe you can get something from the rich man. That is self-seeking. That is selfishness. That is not considering the good and the, the concern for the individuals walking in the door. But that comes from a wavering, from, a, from an unstable faith. Alongside this, James concludes with sincerity, which brings us back to this idea of hypocrisy. The, James has little to no time for the hypocrite. And that's what he's getting at here. A church full of hypocrites is going to lead to the degradation of the Lord's name in the culture of the city. Uh, A church filled with duplicitous individuals is not a congregation that anybody wants to be a part of. Where there is hypocrisy, where there is duplicity, there is dissension, there is division. So be sincere. Be sincere. This, all of it, leads us to a picture of heavenly wisdom as a harvest of righteousness sown in peace by those who are called to make peace. So we conclude with the picture of our garden oasis. We have the possibility to cultivate. We have the the potential to grow this garden as we ourselves individually submit to the rule and the reign and the authority of God through the Word of God read and preached. That's, that's where we find ourselves. Are we pursuing our ultimate aims or are we pursuing God's ultimate aims? Where God's ultimate aims are front and center, there is no room for division. There is no room for dissension. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Please pray with me.
Lord, we thank you for the revelation of yourself. We thank you that we, uh, Lord, that we have been brought into your family. We thank you for the privilege and the honor it is, Lord, to know you. There's so many in the world that don't know you, Lord, and you have chosen us. You have revealed yourself to us, Lord, and you have brought us into your family that we might inherit eternity with your son and in your son. Lord, we pray that You reveal Yourself more clearly to us, Lord, and we pray that in that revelation that You would snuff out every bit of selfishness, every bit of hypocrisy, and every bit of pride that that is in every single one of our own hearts. Lord, show us those areas in our lives where we're pursuing our own ends, our own means, our own aims over and against Your purposes for us in Christ. Lord, please be present with Your people. We pray, Lord, that You bless our fellowship today. We pray, Father, that that peace, that goodness, that righteousness would reign in our midst, Lord, and that we would be a people who sincerely believe what Your Word has proclaimed is the truth. Lord, give us candor in all things. Help us to passionately pursue You and to carefully and clearly articulate what it is You have revealed to us. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.